Welcome to another edition of UCBS on Times Live. I have one of my favorite South African policy analysts, journalists, and also economic commentators, Duma Pubule. And we're going to be talking about the budget. The thing about the budget is it's one of those events on the news calendar that come and go. And I thought to myself, you know what? Let the dust settle down and then let's reflect a week or two later what some of the important threads are to pull through and to keep within the public space. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know this are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Juma, good morning to you, and thanks so much for coming on the platform. Thank you very much, Estibius. I want to get straight into the substance. Tell us why economic growth must be sustainably high, ideally close to the 6% that was aimed at in the National Development Plan over several years in order for us to deal chronic poverty and high levels of unemployment, a death blow. What is that relationship? Okay, so... Unemployment, I'm sorry, the GDP growth rate is probably the most important number in our economy. So when the economy grows faster and there's a relationship between GDP growth, it influences employment. There's a relationship between employment and GDP growth. We're not quite sure where it is, but you can can model as to what's going to happen. There's also a relationship between GDP growth and the size of the budget. Um, so everything, so everything becomes more affordable when we have an economic, when the economy is growing very fast. So um, there's, um, yeah. So I believe, it, and it, it, let's just talk about unemployment. And um, I had a, so you know, I, I tried to forecast what happens when we um, grow at six percent until 2030. This is just to illustrate the scale of our crisis. You know, I was having a, it, yeah. So. I did the forecast and I said, we will still have 11.4 million unemployed people by 2030. The unemployment rate will have gone down to about the expanded definition, about 34.9% from 46.6%. So what I'm trying to say is that we create jobs, our budget becomes much larger than it is at the moment. And we can pay, I was just reading just before this about Barra running out of money and Barra has money to, you know, and so many things become possible. We can start to dream again about the kind of country that we wanted to create in 1994. Yeah. But you accuse the government and all the main institutions within the state, um, whether we look at the budget speech, the SONA, what treasury is up to the Reserve Bank, that although they claim to try and square a circle, in other words, they tell us, I mean, the minister, Khorangwana, told us, quote, we need to strike a balance between saving lives and livelihoods while supporting inclusive growth. And the budget presents this balance. You are not convinced that it does. 
Yes. So yes, it doesn't because um, I did. I went through the numbers, and there was a there was a, a tax overrun due to the mining companies of 197 billion rands, and um, the money that was invested into the economy. I think I don't have the numbers next to me. It's about 63 billion rands. So that is about a third of the revenue overrun. So only a third of the budget went to investing in South Africans in the economy and two thirds went towards addressing the debt. So just on that alone, um, it, it wasn't uh, prioritizing the needs of South Africans in terms of growing the economy. But you must remember that if, let's just say a scenario, we invest all of it. You know, it seems for, a, we invest all of it in the economy, the economy grows faster than it would have grown and the debt ratio goes down. So what I'm saying that I forgot to say this, you see this, the growth, the 6% growth is what results in the debt ratio going down because debt is measured as a percentage of GDP. So if the economy is growing, then the debt takes care of itself and it goes down. And there's so many examples in history where that has been done. For example, after the Second World War in the UK, there were debt GDP ratio was about 250%. It was a Nobel laureate. Um, I was reading an article recently by Nobel laureate Amartya Sen. And he says, this was just comfortably dealt with through growth of the economy. And during this period at 250% of GDP, and they set up the National Health Insurance Service, and they did, they expanded the welfare state. So I think in South Africa, the SONA, the budget, the Reserve Bank, they don't talk about this growth target that is in the National Development Plan. So what I'm saying is that if you start everybody talking about this growth target and it becomes binding on every institution as was intended by the National Development Plan, and then the policies change and the focus, because what we have now is that the Treasury is focusing on debt and the Reserve Bank is focusing on um, inflation. But if the, we flip that and then we say all these institutions, the SONA must refer to the NDP target of 6%, the Reserve Bank and the Treasury must all be binding for them. And then we'll get somewhere with different policies. Yeah. I'm going to get to the obvious nexus question. How do we get to 6% in a couple of minutes? But before we get there, I want to do one more sort of counterfactual or just trying to project what would happen if we don't. If we indeed end up having 1.8%, 1.9% economic growth over the next couple of years, what are the consequences from a political economy point of view? That's a very good question. So I also did a forecast and I tried to project what would happen. And we are now at 12.5 million unemployed people. And it is not a nice country to live in South Africa at the moment. It will become worse by 2030. We'll be talking about 70 million unemployed people. The unemployment rates will be about 51%. Um, so, um, so every year we delay making this, um, doing something about the unemployment rate, it just gets worse. And you have to, you have to create more jobs than you would have had to create um, if, if we hadn't got such a high unemployment rate yeah. Okay, now let's talk about how we get the economy growing because one thing you sort of, your last couple of pieces in new frame, you left hanging what is a rhetorical question or accusation that if in effect, the government is making a political choice by focusing, for example, on keeping the debt burden as low as possible and also focusing on inflation targeting as a more important priority than doing that which it needs to do in order to grow the economy four, five, six percent. But surely this government, there's a lot wrong with it. 
<laughs> but it can't be intrinsically opposed to the idea of growing the economy beyond 2%. Isn't the reality that it's just bloody hard to get everything right in terms of the structure of the economy? Isn't that the, the brutal truth? Well, first of all, let's just say the SONA says nothing, the budget says nothing, the Reserve Bank says nothing. So that's number one. Now, what does it mean to grow at um, 6, 6%? So you add inflation, um, and let's just make for argument's sake, we're a 6.1 trillion economy. So if you want to grow by, um, I'm just making, you have to grow by 10% mm -hmm. to take away inflation. I'm just making for argument's sake. So there yeah. must be 600 billion rands of new spending in the economy. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, where will that money come from? The mm. private sector can't invest in an economy that is not growing, so the money must come from the government. So what you do is that, um, so so let me just give you, so each 1% of GDP is 60 billion rand. So if we want to do a stimulus to the economy, um, let's say 3% of GDP, it, then you do 180 billion rands you add to the economy, and then there's a multiplier effect on the economy. Uh, economists don't know what the multiplier is. The IMF says an infrastructure multiplier is 2.7. So for every billion rand that you invest in the economy, you get 2.7 billion rands back. So, and then, and then there's also needs for consumption spending. So generally what happens throughout the world, like let's take the Biden stimulus, they blend infrastructure spending and immediate humanitarian spending on um, providing money to people. So I believe that let's say for argument's sake, we blend infrastructure spending and we blend immediate supports to families through grants and so forth. You could perhaps get a, a stimulus of 1.5 times what you originally spent. This is just an assumption. So then you would need to 3% GDP growth. So you would have to have a stimulus of 3% of GDP, which is 60 times one, three times, which is 180. And then you multiply that by 1.5 and you're at 4.5% growth plus the 1.5%. So it would take a stimulus of 3% of GDP to get us growing there immediately. I'm talking about in the next year. So, um, so that's what happens in all these Asian countries. You know, um, they sit there at the beginning of this year, like, which I follow the Chinese a lot, and they say, what do we take? We need to grow 6%. We have to throw the kitchen sink pit this problem. And every institution rallies around this target and they start spending the money. It can come from the state-owned banks, it can come from the treasury, it can come from the central bank. So that's what we need to do as a country. So as a minimum, if we want to get to 6% immediately, then we have to put our, believe, 180 billion rands into the economy in the next year. And then- Well, can you yeah. talk to me about what the cost of the stimulus package is? Because the one thing you do very well is to call out your interlocutors who use euphemisms like, for example, fiscal discipline, fiscal constraint, and you rightly say that those are just euphemisms for austerity, and the price of austerity is that you don't necessarily grow the economy as you should if you seriously want to deal with unemployment. But equally, when you talk about stimulus, there's a positive word cloud association associated with stimulus amongst you and your left-wing colleagues. But playing devil's advocate, someone from the other side might say, a stimulus is not just money you take out of your wallet. A stimulus has got a cost attached to it because you probably have to borrow and indebt future generations. You know, I was listening to the debate you had. You must please send me with Dondo, with Kabilioka <laughs> and Mike, Mike Sachs. It was fascinating. And um, towards the end, you know, 
I think Tavi says there wasn't a stimul there wasn't um, austerity, and then Mike says no, there was austerity over the past few years. So I just wanted to listen this again for my column next week for Business Day. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I hope you can send it to me again. But anyway, let me, yeah. So what I want to say is that um, okay, so the stimulus package. There's two outcomes from economists. Number one is inflation. And it could stimulate inflation. But as I say in a recent paper on the basic income grant, I'm just using this as an example. So I, I propose a basic income grant of 360 billion rands. It can take 360 billion rands to implement it over three years. But the economy, and according to stats, they say the average business in South Africa, and um, they're working at 80% capacity mm. because there isn't enough. So we're well below what we can produce. Mm. So by definition, there's no inflationary threats. So you'd have to have a much, so the 360 billion rand that I propose would only fill, you know, a small part of the, the what you call the 20%. So the 20%, what we call an output gap, it's about a trillion rands. So you can, um, it's more than a trillion rands actually. So if you spend a trillion, you would have to spend a trillion rands before you hit um, inflationary, Things. Let's take um, Ukraine out of it and all of that. Yeah, but I'm just saying that theoretically, there's a lot of spending we can get before we reach inflation. The second one is interest rates. And um, before we get to interest rates, I just want to say there's so many other ways in which you can raise the money that doesn't involve going to borrow on the okay. on the on the capital markets. Yeah. So I've proposed um, about many. I, I did a paper where I proposed about 11 options to spending in which borrowing was one of them. We have a public investment corporation which can um, provide lending to the government on very favorable terms. They've already provided lending of 700 billion rands to the government and there's no reason why they can't continue to provide lending to government. That's number one. And number two, on favorable terms, you must remember that the new development bank loan and the World Bank loans to South Africa have got a payment holiday. And the payment holiday I think is five years on one loan and three years. So there's no reason why that can't happen. Number two, we've got foreign exchange reserves of almost a trillion rands. There's no reason why some of that can't be used towards. So I'm just using that for example state. And there's so many other options that do not involve borrowing. Now we can borrow all of it in um, the, the capital markets. Um, and then the people will say, no, that could cause interest rates to increase. Um, now, you know, I was, I, I, I shouldn't be saying this because I was at a, at a workshop at the Atlantic Foundation recently, and I, I, I think it was under Chatham Rules. And, but um, one of the very famous South African businessmen said he had um, actually taken the stimulus package that he proposes to a company called PIMCO, which is the biggest bond trader in the world. And they said, if we spent this money to grow our economy, what would happen to our cost of capital? And PIMCO says, no, we would support that as PIMCO, this American company, because we see it as growth positive and we would actually maybe the cost of capital goes down. But what I want to say is that um, the money that we're talking about, I don't think it's enough to cause a huge spike mm -hmm. in, the, in the interest rates. But even if it does, I think it's a price worth paying towards getting our economy growing because we're not talking... so. We're not talking about huge amounts in terms of changes in the cost of capital. We're talking, it's now about 10%. We're talking maybe another percent mm. or whatever, you know. So I think even if it does result in higher interest rates, I have to be quite upfront. I think it's a price worth paying if you look at the benefits. Because as you asked me correctly, 
What is the benefit of not doing? Where will this growth come from? I, I'm now asking people, mm. where do you think this growth will come from if it doesn't come from government spending? Mm. And we were at the same thing at the foundation and the representative from business was saying, we agree that all these structural reforms are not going to shift the down. Mm. So we want them, but they're not going to create the growth. So the growth has to come from somewhere, Eusebius. And that is what I'm trying to say to South Africans. And if the interest cost goes up, or the debt goes up a little bit, mm -hmm. then so be it, um, if it can grow the economy. So now we must spend it efficiently, and we must spend it on infrastructure, it mustn't disappear, and the money, the, the, which is a separate question, and we must spend it on consumption spending to, you know, to support people's incomes immediately. Yeah. As an aside, on the first of those two, I mean, you're talking about social spending that can potentially stimulate the economy, but first and foremost, massive projects that can have a similar kind of positive effect on economic growth. I don't want to pursue this for too long, but would you concede that maximum economic growth benefits are obviously dependent on a bunch of further things holding true, such as, for example, any monies that are allocated for such projects not being stolen, tender processes being hygienic, and this state doing better than in the last 10, 15 years when state-led projects have either ballooned and then become massive by the time they come online, if they come online at all, or ultimately ending up in the coffers of men and women that are in kleptocratic relationships. Yes, so there's two constraints of the economy immediately. Number one, obviously, is ESCOM. Like, we can't, we're growing at 1%, and the lights are not staying on. It's a massive crisis. And I've begun putting my mind to this thing. We all have studied ESCOM as um, South Africans, and we all know. But I, I was talking to um, you know, great energy analyst who I support, and Brian Kamanzi, and, and another friend of mine who's a, who's a, who's a stockbroker, uh, in the financial markets. And he says there is no solution to ESCOM over two years. We will have load shedding. So I said, Brian, that's not good enough. So I was, immediately after that, I spoke to the one from the asset management company. And he says, yeah, I told you long ago, we have to get those two ships, the power ships, you know. So I said, well, yeah, I know. I'm beginning to think of it. But so what I'm trying to say, you see this, the fact that we must have load shedding for two years, it's a non-starter from me. We have to find an immediate solution for this, even if it means bringing those ships to South Africa, which I was completely opposed to, as my friend completely told me about it. So he says that obviously you'd get to have people like him. You know, I mean, so I'm talking about people who are specialized to do the negotiations because South Africans don't trust the Department of Mineral Resources at Gwede Antarctic to do the negotiations. And we're very suspicious about a 20-year contract. Rather, we could do a five-year contract. But I'm not saying that that is what I support. I'm just saying everything should be on the table. And this, because the consequences of two more years of 1.5% growth is too ghastly to contemplate. And mm. so we've, we've, we've said we're going to bring together a group of people and come up with an immediate solution. That's number one. Number two, I always use the example of... Um, Nkuseli Jack, a friend of mine who was running for mayor of Kaveha. Um, and um, he's a very conservative person and we disagree on this. So I said, but Nkuseli, why wouldn't you agree to a stimulus? Because you're a businessman and you will benefit from the stimulus. And then he says, 
okay, now I agree with you, but not this ANC government. You know, so you're winning an argument when someone says, I accept you're right, but not this ANC government. <laughs> Sorry. So I said, okay, so why don't you use the Solidarity Fund, um, which is already managed professionally. And as far as we know, it hasn't, there hasn't been a lot of wastage. So we set up these solidarity funds in all the provinces, including in the Eastern Cape, and we have civil society oversight over all the spending. So we will, mm. you will go to the solidarity fund in, um, in Kabecha with your projects, the communities, and you propose certain projects that will create jobs based on certain criteria. So this mm. happened apparently in the US after the New Deal, where they set up temporary agencies to spend the New Deal money in the 30s, and they were called alphabet agencies. So we we have a very we have no state capacity. Nobody believes in the states. So I'm saying that why don't you just bypass the state temporarily? Not mm. so we don't have to take everything because remember that there are other entities that can spend the money that are not the state. There's the city of Joburg, there's some municipalities are run well, I don't know. But um, so some of it could be, we could set up this parallel temporary structure. And I first saw it being proposed by um, Mark Swilling and a French author. And that's where I started thinking about it that no. So what I'm trying to say, whether it's ESCOM, we have to, whether it's the stimulus spending, we have to think about things that we've never thought of before. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I, I, I agree. And the alternative, which is fatalism as a mindset, simply is not going to get us anywhere. Second last question for today. And these are two discrete questions that fall outside the critique of the budget and also the importance of focusing on economic growth and not um, only focusing on on inflation as well as on making sure the debt is as as low as possible. Um, I've seen something that I think will just be useful for you to explain to my listeners, even though it's slightly off kilter in terms of our main topic for today. Why do you get annoyed when people analogize from the household budget to the national budget? That's a very good one. So a national budget doesn't operate like a household budget. And for my household, there's an independence between my income and my spending. So when I need to cut when I need to reduce my debt, I have to cut spending, you know, and um, but for a government, when you cut spending, it reduces GDP. So the correct analogy that you put to a household is that if you cut spending, your salary goes down. So if you knew that by cutting spending, your salary would go down, you wouldn't cut spending, you'd find ways of getting more income perhaps moonlighting, getting a second or a third job, you know? So that's what, and so you seek to increase household income. But um, but this simplistic understanding, I mean, you know, Angela Merkel used to use it a lot, talk about this um, housewife in mm. Germany, you know, and to justify the austerity policies. But those of us um, on the left, we, we, we just, it resonates with people. It seems reasonable. When the finance minister says, you know, we must spend some of it to reduce debt and some of it to grow the economy. It seems reasonable to normal people. So we have to explain that, no, when the government spends money, a lot of it comes back. And then the last analogy I want to give to you is that um, I did some modeling on the basic income grant. And I worked out that through the stimulus effect, through that, if people 
you know, Tessa Dooms was saying this, defending me on social media, by the way, the answer political analyst that the people are not going to use the big and keep it under the mattress. So if they spend yeah. the money in their townships in Tembisa yeah. and El Dorado Park and so forth, it's going to stimulate the economy. So I modeled what would be the stimulus effect, the extra tax revenues you get, and we would claw it back from people who work, and then we'd also get VAT receipts. Two thirds yeah. of the money would come back to government if we implemented this basic income grant. So for me, if I spend money, I don't get two thirds of the money back. You know, um, it just disappears, you know. So that is why we say that the, we shouldn't um, make this analogy between a household budget and a national budget. Yeah, yeah. The last question is also discrete, but broadly thematically related. And this is something that certainly annoyed me. Um, the president and the minister of finance successfully drew the opposition, especially the EFF, into a nonsense undergraduate debate when the president said in the SONA, we don't create jobs, we have to create an environment in which the private sector can create jobs. And it takes you back to a week one economics 101 debate around command economies versus free marketeering, when in reality, all economies are mixed in the, at least in most countries. And the question is about the, the, the extent of that mix. But at a political level, I thought the president wittingly or unwittingly, probably wittingly managed to get the opposition to obsess about that one liner. How did you feel? about that debate and what do you think about this surely clearly ridiculous mantra that um, the market and private enterprise in particular is to be left the business of quote-unquote creating jobs well you see because i never responded to that i never wrote about it because like you i think it's a stupid debate but um I had a discussion with the president two days before the budget and um, for about an hour we talked and I explained to him what I said to you earlier on that, you know, even if we um, grow the economy by 6%, there'll still be 11.5 million, 4 million unemployed people. So you have to increase your public employment programs. And he actually said, yes, um, I believe that anything under a million jobs is too little. Because so, I said, like, the expanded public works program creates half a million jobs a year. And then mm. you've got your stimulus package, which I think created a similar amount. And he says, yeah, I agree with you. Um, everything, we must increase it to maybe, um, sorry, it says a million per project is too little. So I was saying that we need to mm. obviously, the next thing, we can't rely on economic growth to create mm. jobs there has to be a role for public employment schemes and i've been working on this for cbs i'm i'm thinking we should set a medium-term target of about five million jobs from these public employment programs in addition so um we need to expand them we need to and the president said the good thing about his stimulus package is that we consolidated we cons we centralized it nationally and there wasn't a lot of corruption that we know of you know because we could monitor mm. where the spending was going so then i asked i said mm. now, why don't you just collapse all these government job creations projects expanded public works national youth development agency under the same principle under one roof where you can monitor what is happening because what's happening now is that everybody is claiming credits there's a small project in Gaveja municipality a small project in department of labor and everybody wants to claim credit for it, but maybe we should set up, I know people were saying, I 
We have great faith in the government's ability to do things, but we have to expand the public employment programs here. So the government can directly create jobs, number one, and number two, the government also, through growing the economy, they can create more jobs, millions of jobs, by setting up the right policies that grow the economy. And I have to mention as well, there's huge shortages in terms of nurses, teachers. I, I looked at nurses and teachers for work I'm doing in Kosatu. And to cut the long story short, and um, to reach OECD benchmarks on nurses per population, doctors per population, and teachers per population, we need to employ about a million people in the public sector. And just to one on a, on a departing you note, know, for doctors, if we want to reach the mm -hmm. same benchmarks as in OECD, the rich countries, we have to. We need one hundred and fifty thousand doctors. Yeah. So I'm just saying mm -hmm. that. So the jobs, it is everyone's responsibility to create jobs. So that's why I didn't really participate in this debate, uh, a non-debate, as you correctly said. It's not just. <laughs> it's not just for the private sector, although the private sector will create should create jobs. It's for everybody to create jobs. There's also a huge non-profit sector and um, that must be, you know, lubricated to be in a good position to create jobs. Um, yeah. I don't know who thinks that you have a lot of faith in the in the state. I think you make normative arguments about the duties that are intrinsic to statehood. But in terms of the empirical analysis, you indict the government and you do so based on robust data, whether it's the low growth numbers or whether it is the way you wonderfully did recently to go back to every successive sonar and simply excerpt the promises about job creation and then stack it next to the opposite, which is the jobless rate that has instead increased every successive year, which leads me to the really final question. Is there anything positive you have to say about the, the Ramaphosa-led government when it comes to what they've done for the economy? No, they, to be honest, I don't... <laughs> you, you know what? There, there's, um, there's a commodity boom currently, and there's a lot of debate around... Um, economists and um, most of them that, that I talk to believe that it will in, increase and it will continue over the next three years and we've got a short-term bump because of Ukraine, the war in Ukraine and so forth. But the question is why can't we use that windfall to invest back in the economy and as I said in the second article that I wrote that there could be another windfall for another 500 billion rands are you going to use that 500 billion rands windfall to pay debt again and not mm. um, invest in our people? And to me, the obvious answer is that if this windfall continues as it is this year, we're talking about a, in fact, the government's uh, revenue forecasts are so conservative, it's almost like what was happening before um, COVID. So mm. I, I think many of us, we believe that this boom will continue. There'll be a huge, this year alone, we could have another 200 billion rand um, windfall, you know? And um, and so I so that, that is the positive. It's it's a it, it's a act of God, if you want to call it. And, and Yeah, I was about to say, even the positive is qualified because to some extent, it's an externality that's positive rather than, you know, the result of endogenous government behavior. Yes, so what I'm trying to say is that what do we use that windfall for? Um, we have to use the windfall to invest in our people, in our infrastructure, and not prioritize this debt in the short term. I was talking to, um, I was at another presentation, and we have to grow first and sort out the debt later. So I would like to see that this windfall, as it, there will be a windfall this year. Let us invest it back into the economy, and let's create the jobs, and let's provide income to people and 
the economy will grow higher than it would have because the growth forecast for this year is 1.5%. With the load shedding, it's going to be less. You know? So we have to sort out the ESCOM problem and we have to find a way of um, stimulating the economy. Duma, as always, love your passion and your incisiveness. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for seeing this.